0: You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com.
1: Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 677. Pika Pika.
0: Pikachu. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle
2: Podcast,
0: where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex
3: Ferrari.
1: Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films, from predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them. The odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the entrepreneur. In Rise of the Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Entrepreneur method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Now, guys, today on the show, we have the writing team of Dan Hernandez and Benji Samit. And Dan and Benji are the creative masterminds behind Pokemon Detective Pikachu and the new Adam's Family 2, among many other things that they've done. They've worked in television for years. They were on one of my favorite shows, uh, One Day at a Time, uh, 1600 Pen, and uh, many other shows. And we get into not only what it takes to make it in, in writing for television and then writing in Hollywood in general. Their story, their journey of getting through, breaking through, how it is to work together as a partnership, writing other people's characters, like with Pikachu and the Addams Family, and what it's like uh, running a show because now they've become showrunners of their own show, and much, much more. This is an extremely valuable episode for any screenwriters out there who want to know uh, and get inspired by a story and. Also learn a little bit about the craft and how these guys are able to do what they do. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dan Hernandez and Benji Sumit. I'd like to welcome to the show, Dan Hernandez and Benji Sumit. How are you guys doing?
4: We're great. Doing all
1: right. Doing all right. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show, guys. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm so glad that we were just talking beforehand um, that, uh, Dan, you're, you're the other Cuban I know uh in the business um <laughs> people are always shocked to hear like i'm cuban and they're like you're cuban it's always fascinating when i'm on set i'll just start busting out some spanish and people are like
5: what is going on <laughs>
1: uh, well yeah it's it's sometimes
2: it takes people by surprise or you know i think that um the, you know there's more there's there's quite a there's more of us than i think people realize cuban, yes uh, Uh, Phil Lord is Cuban. um, Oh yeah, there's a bunch. Yeah, there's. So there's, you know, we're we're kind of we'll infiltrate slowly. That's our thing. Listen,
1: no matter no matter where you are in the world, there's always we're we're everywhere. Like I was in Germany. Like a friend of mine was in Germany. He's like they just walked by. He's like, is that salsa music? And like there was a full blown (laughs) salsa club right in the middle of Berlin or something like that. So we are we are everywhere infiltrating. I like that word infiltrating the business little by little. Um, So guys. First and foremost, how did you two meet, and how did you guys get started in the business? Because you've been pretty much working together almost the entire time, right?
4: Oh yeah. We, you know, we we went to college together. We met in college. We went to Brown uh, in Rhode Island, and you know, we we started we we started working in, on like plays and stuff and theater together, and uh, and yeah, I mean, it's we've been together ever since. Of you know, it's been, we graduated bit over 15 years ago now. And yeah, just keep writing together.
2: Yeah, you can't seem to shake each other.
1: <laughs> uh, I've tried to get rid of them, but I
5: guess can't.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I've tried many times. <laughs> um, I actually didn't mean to wear this shirt today. I just dropped my daughter off at preschool and I just grabbed the first one. But uh, <laughs> I, what, this wasn't premeditated. But yeah, we did meet at Brown and uh we, uh yeah, we just really quickly realized that we had a shared taste, I guess, for the things that we liked and the things that we didn't like. And I think so often having that taste is the first step towards a successful partnership. And so once we had that sort of foundation, it just, we, we started working on some theater things together. We started working on some writing projects together and we just never stopped. <laughs> we just kept going and <laughs> going. So, so really. Since 2006,
1: yeah. So what was that thing that sparked sparked it for each of you to be in this ridiculous business? <laughs>
4: um, I mean, to be in this business, I, I grew up in LA, so I've always been sort of surrounded by it and tangentially touching it. And, you know, right. like my mom has written some things, my yeah. dad has worked in entertainment in various ways. And so it was always a part of my life and, you know, I love movies. I love TV. And, you know, I think, I think I always knew I wanted to do something with, you know, like a lot of people that grew up in LA, so many of them are just like, I want nothing to do with like so many (laughs) of my friends that I grew up with do not live in LA anymore. Uh, but I was just like, I love it here. I want to be here. I want to keep doing this. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was an easy decision for
2: me. (laughs) My path is a little more circuitous because I'm from Fort Lauderdale, Florida
1: originally. Stop okay, stop stop it. <laughs> I'm from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Oh, really? I was raised in in my in, in the Fort Lauderdale area and I
3: yeah.
1: we could we could talk, I mean I went we, 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 uh, we, we're, 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 uh, I was we're, 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 originally it was in Sunrise, but then I was born in Plantation. My parents, uh, my parents are still. I just, I literally just got back from Fort Lauderdale. So I'm sorry, guys, everyone listening. I apologize. Uh, it's, uh, it's rare enough to see a Cuban. It, it's yeah. rare enough to meet another Cuban in the business, let alone another one from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Well, not even Florida. I was actually, afraid.
4: I mean, the odds are when you meet a Cuban, they're from South Florida.
1: I know it's very rare to even meet a Cuban from South Florida, right? <laughs> <laughs>
2: I grew up in, actually, I grew up in Cross Springs in Margate. Oh, okay. So sure. Like very, you know, I say Fort Lauderdale because the, because it's- yeah. the deep. Yeah, you know, like depending on who I'm talking to, it's like I'm from Miami.
1: I always say Miami. I just say my, I'm from yeah, Miami because yeah, yeah. it's like for Lauderdale, isn't that where the spring break movies were shot, like in
2: '85? Probably you had a cruise that left there once. Yeah, if you know Fort Lauderdale, you <laughs> went on a cruise probably, but right, the Venice of America.
5: It's the Venice of say,
1: America. Wow, I've never heard that. that.
2: That is true. That is their nickname. If you look on like the the you know like the city stat anyway.
1: So Dan's uh, just so, so, shaking his head. He's like, "Can we just move it along?"
4: The, the Fort
2: Lauderdale. <laughs> so coming, coming from the Venice of America, <laughs> I never could have imagined myself in the movie biz. I thought I would be on a, I don't know, like a glass-bottom tour boat in the inner coast <laughs> or something. But um, I always loved writing, and I always loved performing and acting. And so at Brown, I did a ton of um, theater. I, you know. A lot of performance, a lot of writing, and I always was interested in t v writing and movie writing, but it felt like something amorphous that yeah it didn't feel like an actual career. it felt like so I, you know, sort of intellectually I thought to myself, well, I guess that's something that people do, but how do you even begin to pursue that? Who are the people that pursue that? And then when I met Benji, I realized <laughs> anybody could do it. <laughs> 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 but, That's but, awesome. And, 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 and honestly it was actually meeting benji and becoming best friends with him that changed the
4: trajectory of my life because for benji who was much more familiar with la because it's my hometown like it's sure. not the big scary place that it is for so many people right like, i could sort of break down for dan and be like no just come to la like we'll go well, we can crash at my mom's house. And, uh, and we did. And we sure did. <laughs> so <laughs> meeting Benji, who had a more practical knowledge of, like, how do you even begin
2: to pursue a profession of TV and movie writer, that really made me feel comfortable to give it a shot. And, and that was the beginning of, of
3: that journey.
1: Now, you guys were involved with a project that's very dear to my heart,
0: which is One Day at a Time. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Which it is, it was, it was sad to see it go.
1: I was a huge fan of it. And uh, again, going back to the whole Cuban vibe that they, that they made them Cuban and they put them in, uh, oh God, where's that? Uh, Echo Park, uh, mm-hmm. in, which is like, it's like the Venice of, of, of uh, LA. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it the
3: Venice, the Venice
1: of LA? No. Yeah, exactly. Echo, Echo Park. Echo, Echo Park's the Echo Park of LA. Um of course. But it was, it was such a, it was such a fun show. Uh, how did you guys get involved with that show? Yeah.
4: So, I mean, the, the showrunner of that show, uh co-showrunner was uh, Mike Royce, who a uh, great, talented writer from, you know, for years and years and years and, and, We, our first job as staff writers was on another show that he ran, 1600 Pen. And Mm -hmm. so we hit it off with him. We had a great time working with him. It was really, that was an amazing show to work on. All the writers, like it was just such a great writers' room for a first show. And then, you know, fast forward a few years later, Mike got paired up with, with Gloria Calderon Kellett, who we didn't know, but they were working on this. Yeah. Cuban American show together, and Mike, when they started staffing the show, Mike was like, "I know a great Cuban uh, <laughs> that we can staff on the show," and, and his and, friend and a guy who-
5: <laughs> and his <laughs> friend.
4: <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, ben,
2: Benji's an honorary Cuban. Yes, um, but yeah, I, I think that because we'd had a good experience with Mike on Six Hundred Pen, he he asked us if we would be interested in in coming in on one day at a time. I was particularly interested because it felt right that uh, on some level for me that I should be on the ground floor of a big Cuban show, maybe the only Cuban show that, you know, I I had seen in a while. Um, And I was really, you know, Gloria and I ended up being the only Cubans on the staff. There were other Latino people, but we were the the Cubans on the staff for the first two seasons. And then in the third season, Janine... Brito joined us, who's amazing. Uh, half Cuban, half Icelandic. Just like, <laughs> just got how, does that,
0: how does that happen? <laughs> pretty
2: good. Yeah, pretty good. Uh, but, but for the first two seasons, uh, it, it was just Gloria and me. And I felt like part of what my contribution was, was trying to bring verisimilitude and authenticity to the stories that we were telling. And, and we did realize that and you probably know this better than anyone, is you know, a Cuban growing up in Los Angeles or San Diego has a very different experience from a Cuban growing up in Miami or Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> or, you know, obviously, we all started in, you know, the same spot in, mm. in, the, in the Caribbean. But, you know, that just the diaspora has, it just it yields different experiences. And so I think that I was sort of the... East Coast representative of what that experience was. And I tried to and, you know, my it it, it so happens that my family, like the family one at a time is extremely liberal, which is sort of atypical. So I did feel like there was but not all of them, but my direct family. So I felt very close to the Alvarez family in that sense, which I did think it was it was. It was really interesting to write a Cuban family that was progressive and that was working on issues and really trying to, like, work out where they landed on a bunch of topics that were mm-hmm. tough and 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 not always obvious to talk about. Uh, so I'm really proud of the work that we did on that show. And um, I was really happy. And of course, the opportunity to work with Norman Lear yeah. was a huge, uh, I, mean, like, I mean, what. What a gift that was.
1: So, I mean, so there was something I mean, I, I saw every episode and I remember watching it. I'm like, my God, this is very much like a throwback to the 80s and 90s when they would do the the deep episode, the the episode that tackles something deep. Like you wouldn't see that with a lot of the current day, uh, even things in the last decade, you wouldn't see those kind of like tackling like racism and tackling like really tough things that shouldn't really be in a (laughs) in a 30-minute comedy but you guys did how was it like doing like how was it like trying to was that like in the beginning like you guys like no no we're gonna do this old school we're gonna we're gonna tackle things that aren't being tackled
4: you know i think partially it was you know when you have the show that's coming originally from the mind of norman lear and you know he's still there for this new version and like that was I mean, for decades and decades and decades, like that was such an important part of his work on TV. Like he had he was responsible for so many amazing sitcoms that were more than just uh, silly jokes and gags and things like extremely funny. But, you know, actually using the medium to, you know, try and, yeah, give a lesson in something and try to do some good with. With what we're doing, and so that was sort of a, a guiding principle and ethos, and it was important for Mike and Gloria as well, and all of the writers to to try and carry that legacy forward and and sort of do a classic, you know, multicam sitcom with a live audience that really, you know, it's it was like putting on a play every week, honestly, uh, and yeah, it was just. A great experience yeah using the template
2: that norman had established over the course of his illustrious career Mm -hmm. and really trying to not shy away from that and not being worried that it would come off as old-fashioned or something Mm -hmm. um that was that was important to all of us to try to to capture and to and to try to live up to what is the modern interpretation of that and and because it was this Cuban family to say well there's a bunch of stories within this mode of to- of storytelling that we haven't seen before because yeah. it's it's just different culture it's it's culturally specific now in, in a way that we just haven't seen a lot of these stories told uh through that Norman Lear lens and that was a, that was what we really tried to do and and I feel we were pretty successful most of the time
1: What was the, I mean, you're working with obviously a living legend. What was it? What was the biggest lesson
3: you took away from working with Norman? Hmm. It's a great question. Norman was, a. I mean, Norman is a big believer
2: in if you get the right person for the, the role that there's a lot of trust that needs to happen between the writers and the actors. And, And that's why he's pretty rigorous about his, his audition process. And he's pretty rigorous about if he doesn't think that the actor has the spark of what he really is looking for, even if it's a good performer or a famous performer, he doesn't, he's not interested in that. He can't, he doesn't, he doesn't engage with that. He really is thinking about what is the part? What am I trying to accomplish? What is that spark that I see
4: in this performer? Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's finding the actor that can, that can transform that what's on the page to the next level where like you know you could have the best script ever but if the actor doesn't click with like it's it's just
1: not doesn't matter. It and, doesn't
4: and the, matter and that may sound facile on some level like you
2: should get a good actor for your <laughs> part I, I guess what i'm trying to say is it's beyond talent it, it, it's it's, that, it's beyond talent yeah. it's it's like an almost indescribable guess,
4: like a, a spiritual connection uh, to the that, part that yeah. he
2: really right. and i think that that's why in the in his you know the four i was gonna say the old days but it sounds you know too ancient but in his in the past norman often went to broadway to look for performers who could carry a dramatic load as well as a comedic load. And Justina Machado was a broader performer. She's an amazing I mean she's an amazing actress. I mean Rita she Moreno, is. of course, is yes. Rita Moreno, a Living Legend, Egot, you know, all of that.
3: So and then you have someone like Stephen Tobolowski, who is just, just such a professional
2: and such a craftsman and such a technician and so thoughtful in the way he does everything. And the whole cast and, you know, the, the, I mean, Isabella, Marcel, like, you know, Isabella has now gone on to start her own show. So there clearly was something there. And of course, Todd Grinnell stepping into the role of Schneider. You know, that was that was a huge role. And so mm. in order to kind of get the alchemy right, Norman really put an emphasis on chemistry and that sort of it factor that that, you know, over the course of. Decades, he can recognize and think in a way that other people, you know, we're, we'd all be so lucky to work long enough to be able to discern that in someone based on an audition, because sometimes these audition tapes. The best, you know, not every not
0: all the best actors shine on a, on a video, right? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
2: You know, and so sometimes it's going beyond the audition tape itself or the performance on the audition, and seeing some quality or some move or some physicality that feels right. And Norman is amazing at identifying those things. It's it's really something we we really try to take away from working with him. Yeah.
1: And Nor- and and Norman's still at it, man. I mean, he, he just yes. he, yeah. He's got projects left and right. Still, he's still getting things developed. He's still getting things produced. How how old is he? Now?
2: He's almost 100. I mean, yeah, he's, he's 98 he's, or 99. Yeah, he's a late, genius. Late 90s. But he's an actual genius. I mean, that—that's right. the thing that—that that you meet a lot of smart people in your life, and you meet many talented people, but the amount of actual genius-level people that you encounter is is pretty small, I would say, in this life. And so when you do encounter it, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, right, this is a special. <laughs> person this is a person that is exceptional there's right. no one that knows more about tv comedy that probably will ever live i would go you know, so sort of, i would venture to say like, yeah no
4: i mean he's been through it all you from know. the beginning yeah we were talking to him and you know he was talking about how like he when he went to to college like he was like studying radio and they heard rumors of this thing called tv that was going to come out and then like <laughs> So then he started doing that, and he's still doing that. Uh, And, yeah, like it's just – talking to him is unlike anyone else we've ever – Yeah, it's not – there's no comparable person. Because he's he's seen it all. Truly. He was there. He's
1: been there. He's the the Oracle. He's the Oracle. He is the Oracle.
2: But he also knew every single person that, you know – you can say, hey, Norman, uh, tell us about, you ever meet Orson Welles? And he's like, yeah. As a matter of fact, I did meet Orson Welles. <laughs> and here's my, you know,
1: like that. Here's that's my Orson Welles awesome. story.
4: Yeah. yeah, I mean, and you could say that. And in, he's still in, so hey, sharp and remembers all of these things. And like, yeah, he goes to work every day. and he, he just, he lives for this stuff. And like, that's, just, it's, it's really. I exciting. just started
1: right? watching, yeah, I just started watching the, the Rita Moreno documentary on Netflix the other day. Yeah. And, and she was just talking about, um, uh, oh my God! Uh, the the oh God, Marlon Brando. Thank you, Marlon Brando. And like she's like, oh yeah, this and that and this. And you're just in there like, what? Oh, yeah. That was <laughs> us, us,
4: you know. How many behind st- scenes and one day at a time is just her regaling us with stories of, of all that. And, and Rita is also a genius. I mean, that's, right. that's, that's. I mean, we we've
2: encountered a few performers in our time that I, I think are. The, the transcendent talent is so remarkable that that it's actually kind of breathtaking to see it expressed. And Rita is one of them. We were fortunate enough to work with Robin Williams uh, briefly. Oh wow! Um, yeah. And that even in the you know week or however many days it was that we worked with Robin, it was like, oh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: that's why Robin Williams is Robin Williams because what he's capable of doing is so beyond anything that we've ever seen, even even on a show that wasn't ultimately a hit, but that didn't change the the watching his craftsmanship, watching the way he approached a scene, watching the way he even approached a take, in between ta- you know? Yeah. So what Benji and I have tried to do throughout our career is, is try to take those lessons from these really, really talented people, genius level people, and, and take, you know, 15% of that <laughs> as a lesson for ourselves and try to <laughs> get that going forward and in our own work as best we can.
1: Now, I wanted to go back real quick. What was yeah. the, what was that breakthrough? What was that thing? Cause I'm I'm assuming you guys didn't just say, Hey, we're going to start writing. And then the the money just started, boatloads of money started coming in okay. and opportunities started flying in. That's the way it works in Hollywood. You say you're mm-hmm. a writer and then opportunities mm-hmm. just show up, right? That's mm-hmm. the way
4: it
5: works.
4: Yeah, no, no, <laughs> no. We, uh, Yeah, no, it was just a whole lot of of hustle. Uh, You know, we, we were out here in L.A. and we were sort of focusing on, at first, just like writing features. And, you know, we got, you know, a small agent to finally read one of our things. And he sent it to a few places and we, you know, Pretty soon after graduate, like in the first couple years, like we we optioned a feature and we're like, oh, this is the thing. If suddenly it's gonna get made, but no, that all fell apart. And, <laughs> you know, and then, like, there was another. Like, we got hired to to write like a uh, straight to DVD movie that never got
5: made. Which is <laughs> awesome. And you
4: know, <laughs> but like this was when we we're you know twenty five and any any gig sounds like a great gig and then you know and so yeah we sort of thought like oh everything's happening but then no nothing was (laughs) happening and so then we were like well let's keep doing movies but let's also try doing tv because that's this whole other side of the industry that we love that's here uh so we started writing some pilots and and those started going around and eventually we started getting some attention there but again like it wasn't overnight overnight thing like even once we started getting to the point of like having showrunner meetings like we weren't getting the jobs yet like we were (laughs) just like we were suddenly at a place where like uh oh yeah we're doing showrunner meetings now and you know that went on for a while like we met on dozens of shows or like a dozen shows probably before we got our first staff job on on 1600 pen
2: yeah i think that you know i think there were a couple of things going on i think that um we were fortunate to get a small agent when we first started out um but you also do realize why these big agencies are the big agencies and and that you know that there is an access issue so that is a bit of an uphill struggle but on the other hand our first agent did an amazing job of getting us read places we probably would not have been read uh just through hustle and through tenaciousness and and I think it helped that because I'm Cuban, we qualify for a lot of these diversity positions on these shows. And so we were ended up getting read by a lot of places that I think probably wouldn't have read writers at our level otherwise, which was really great for us because I people did start to see there was something there. Even if we weren't quite ready to get some of these jobs, there was enough promise that people did take the meeting with us. And we did get in rooms with, really high-level people that we probably, at a pretty young age, um, it still took a long time to, and some luck to get that first gig. But I think it was all, now, looking back on it, and I occasionally meet people who are sort of in similar situations now, and looking back on it, when you have 12 showrunner meetings, that is a sign that something is right in what you're doing, even if those meetings don't ultimately end in a job. You can sort of say, okay, this is seems to be pointing the way towards eventually, hopefully someone is going to say yes. But in the moment it felt more like, why is anyone saying yes? We keep having these near. I'm
1: pretty. You know, I'm pretty enough. Why doesn't anybody want to date me? Yeah. It felt
2: <laughs> like You know, I chose that were you know, like winning Emmys the next year. I was like, we could have won an Emmy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was disappointing at the time and but it forced us to continue to refine what we were doing it can force us to you know work harder on our material because we did feel like we were knocking on the door and because we had made the rounds and all these people where luck played a part is i went to high school with josh gad uh, the actor and he is a friend and he was very close I, i also My wife went to the same high school and she actually was closer with him. He was a senior when we were freshmen. So she was great friends with him. One of my best friends was great friends with him. And when we moved out here, we were able to connect and we became friendly. And Josh said this is before anything, Josh said, well, you know, if I ever get a TV show, I want you guys to work on it. And we said, okay. sure, sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah. And then he went to New York and he did a show called Book of Mormon. And then he got nominated for Tony, which he should have won, in my opinion. <laughs> and then he came back and he had a show, and it was like, "Hey guys, you, I want you to write for my show." <laughs> so
4: that wasn't, but, but even but, that yeah, wasn't just a, that alone wouldn't have been enough. But right. like all of the other meetings that we had had on other shows, it got us on the you know radar uh, on the radar of the NBC executives that were in charge of 1600 pounds. Oh, yeah. they knew who we were. They, like, it, was, it was sort of like all the stars aligning. Right,
2: so it, oh, was, right. it was preparation, it was luck, it was hard work.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. It was timing,
2: all of those things, and, I, and that's why I often say to younger writers or, or artists, no one's journey can really be replicated. It's no. not. It's not possible because if you ask any writers room, "Hey, how did you get your big break?" You're going to hear a crazy roundabout, shaggy dog tale of, "Yeah, well, I knew a guy who did a thing, and then oh, I met a guy, or I was an assistant, and then I did." The, you know, it's just it's not.
3: everyone's the, so Everyone different. is so different. Yeah.
1: So, right right
2: that's how our story came about and, and how we got that first deal.
1: yeah and, and for everyone listening just because it, you knew josh that's no guarantee you would have gotten if you guys were just working at in and out and Josh like hey i want you guys to be a writer that probably wouldn't have worked out you well, guys
5: in, fact, in yeah. fact
4: because we knew josh there was actually uh some hesitancy from, right some other uh like from the showrunner and the creator like they didn't want necessarily to have like the actor's buddies like (laughs) in the writer's room dictating what the actor should and shouldn't do. Uh, So like, you're right. So we sort of had, it was kind of an uphill battle with them.
2: And well, you know, we learned a lesson, an important Hollywood lesson, which is our agent at the time said, you're taking this meeting with the other creators of the show. Uh, It's just a formality. And what Mm. we learned is that anytime anyone tells you something, it's just a formality. it means, it is not a formality a teetering on the edge of disaster. And so I'm very, uh, I have a spidey sense for that phrase. Now, anytime someone tells me it's a formality or it's a layup, I'm like, Oh, okay. That means but I
4: also think, you know, like some of the, some of the failed showrunner meetings from when we were younger, uh, gave us the tools to know how to then handle that meeting. That's that right. formality meeting. where like, uh, some of the the questions thrown at us we actually were prepared for in a way that we weren't when we were 25 yeah. uh, and so it's sort of like yeah looking back at it it's like every moment of our journey like helped there was a reason that happened and it it it's yeah it's,
2: it's well sometimes it is making a decision to to learn something you know so we would occasionally be in uh, at the beginning of these showroom meetings where they would ask you a question like what would you change about the show, or what's the worst part of the show? and I think the natural inclination, especially when you're young, is to
4: equivocate and be like,
2: "No, it's fine, you know no it's not.
4: No, it's not- well, here, you feel like you as like a a baby writer like what how, how are you going to tell a showrunner how to like fix their their show or you know what the issues are, but like they they don't want to hire a baby writer that just tells them that they're right, they want to hire someone who is going to give ideas to make the show better.
5: Yeah. Right. And so
4: after that happened uh, a few times,
2: we together made a decision that it was like, if anyone ever asked us a question, like, what is the worst part of the show or what would you change about the show? We're going to be a completely honest the next time that this comes up. And it so happens that that question was one of the sort of major questions in the 1600 Pen interview. And we just were honest and, and ultimately it proved to be the thing that got us the job. So that's Sometimes awesome. it is sort of discerning, okay, what is there a lesson to be taken here? What did we do wrong? Um, you know, but when Greg Daniels and Mike sure ask you, like, hey, what's the worst part of Parks and Rec? And you're like, it, it when you're 25, it's hard to be like, Well, let me tell you Greg Daniels and Mike Sure, here's what's <laughs> that's we just weren't there emotionally. And I think that if if you know, going yeah. through that experience really prepared us. For the future and yeah and help set the set
5: the, now
1: uh, one thing i'm always fascinated about is because i've never been in a writer's room because i've never done television in that way um how do you break an episode like what is the process in the writers room to breaking an episode
4: i mean it, it varies uh between show to show showrunner to showrunner but i would say the the sort of most common way that it's done is you know we have big discussions those first few weeks of a writers room is really just talking like uh, get, getting to know each other and our personal stories uh you know personal stories that may relate to what the show is about getting to know just talking about who our characters are this or that and slowly through those discussions episode ideas start to come up we're like oh yeah it'd be funny if there was an episode where this happens or you know like one day at a time the first episode we wrote is the one where uh, where she was on hold for the entire episode.
5: We were, <laughs> yeah, I remember that. We we're
4: talking about the VA, and it's like, oh, on hold, and it's like, it was just a moment of like, oh, it'd be funny to do an episode where she's on hold the other the whole time, and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds funny, put it on the board, and so you sort of have like a list of ideas of episodes, and it's up to the showrunner then to be like, all right, all right, now let's actually talk about that episode, and then it becomes more of a discussion of like okay, well, what's gonna happen in that episode? Start to arc it out in loose terms. And, you know, just with the group slowly filling it out to the point where it's like, you sort of have an idea of pretty much scene by scene uh, what the episode is, what the act breaks are. And at that point, the the writer who's been assigned to do that episode actually goes off to start writing an outline. Um, but much of the, you know, yeah, the breaking of the story just happens in a sort of natural way with the whole group.
2: Yeah, and and I think sometimes you may think that you've got a great idea for an episode <laughs> and that over the course of conversation, you find it evolves into something slightly tangential or or just an element of your initial idea sur- survives or becomes the, the springboard toward what the episode is really about. And so you have to have a little bit of openness
4: to changing things and not being prescriptive about yeah you can't be too attached to anything when you're going into these discussions like it really is just like let the discussion take us where it has to go and it and a good showrunner can sort of uh you know find that line of of you know too freewheeling a discussion versus like keeping some sort of shape of like where we're going not Mm -hmm. losing sight of the episode and sort of a whole freewheeling thing um and now that we're
2: showrunners you know you also have to be judicious in saying this is really funny but it doesn't sell out our characters
4: right this is a
2: really cool idea but where do you go from
4: there right are are there enough actual story turn beats for it to sustain an entire episode or is this really just like a gag? so yeah right. is this a gag or mean
2: does it link up
4: thematically with the other stories that you're telling
2: because normally in an episode you're, you're you know you usually have an a story and a b story sometimes
4: or or, mm-hmm. or if it's like you know this idea is good it's not a whole episode oh what about that other episode idea that was on the board maybe we can combine them together into one episode together so like it's yeah you sort of just have to Stay aware of like everything that's been said in the room, and you know, be willing to to steer it in a certain direction if if things are. And
2: working. it can be quite technical, really. I, mean, I I think that that maybe is something that people don't. It, it's hard to understand how technical it can be unless you're actually sitting in a room and seeing how how the episodes are put together, because there are certain things that you need, you know the inciting incident, the, the act That's breaks right. really strong and all of the, you know, the, there is a formula and you can mess with the formula but basically
3: the formula is the, is the formula and understanding sort of what is
2: the, the bedrock of an episode of television that allows you to go off in different directions or to, or to do something different or to subvert that expectation in a way that's that's unexpected but the core of it really isn't that different than what norman was doing or what right. they were doing in you know Anna Costello yeah. or something like it yeah. really is
4: it's, it's it's yeah especially yeah in comedy In comedy but the especially. things the things that make people laugh have always been the same and like you can you update it you modernize it but at the core it's the same stuff
1: right uh, you look at you look at you know the three stooges i still crack up i mean anytime someone gets smacked in the head with a with a wrench and there's no actual bodily harm right it's funny the banana slipping on a banana peel funny Mm -hmm. farts farts funny
2: (laughs) i think there's just something innate in the human character that certain things amuse us and I think also one thing that I I find helpful, and and maybe this is just the way that my brain works, is I I couldn't tell you like the quadratic equation. I couldn't tell you (laughs) the chemical (laughs) bonds of sodium, but I can tell you what happened in a random episode of the Three
0: Stooges, you know, some bit that they did. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
2: Or I could tell you some random Mm -hmm. line from an obscure movie that. And so a lot of times I'll say we need a bit like this. We need a moment like Groucho singing. Hello, I must be going. You know, we need something that captures the spirit of those things. So it's almost there's a shorthand that I think of, which is okay, we need something that plays the role of this comedic moment or this emotional moment, or, you know, an emotional moment within the craziness that that uh really lands, I think often, and uh, I've referenced this before, but you know, when Wayne and Garth and Wayne's world are lying on the top of Garth's car looking at the stars and Garth is whistling the Star Trek tune. It's actually a really beautiful, quiet moment within the within the the craziness of of that story. But it's actually one of the most important moments of the movie because you see their hopes and dreams of these guys, and it's not. I mean, yeah, there are jokes in it, but they're actually really speaking their truth in that moment. And so sometimes you say, okay, we need like a Wayne and Garth moment that's specific to our show, but it captures the feeling and the spirit of oh, this person is speaking the truth. They're struggling. they're struggling so it's something that they probably aren't going to achieve, and we really want them to achieve it, even though it's unlikely. And so that those are. Uh, almost like the component parts that you then try to build it. That, I don't know if everybody does it that way, but that's on my brain. Yeah,
5: which, which
1: is which is really interesting because I found that a lot of bad comedy doesn't understand that there has to be a human story underneath. Like you watch yeah. Coming to America, he really is looking for love. I mean, there's a lot of craziness that happens along the way that's super funny, but there's that thing that's driving the story where it's not just gag after gag after. Then, then you're basically doing Saturday Night Live. You're just doing you know, skit, 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 skit where a lot of, am I, is that fair?
4: Yeah. A hundred percent. You need to, you know, have that core emotion that you can connect to as an audience member or else, yeah, you're just watching silly stuff, which can sometimes be funny, but to sustain you for a long period of time, especially like when you're going into a movie, like you can't last. Hours without having some something to connect to emotionally, and I think it's 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 something that I do think you refine over time.
2: I think that the tendency for young comedy writers is to just focus on funny and gags right. and right. Right.
4: being like uh, being as outrageous, outrageous as possible, and, 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 and,
2: there, yeah. and there is and there is value in that. But now having done a lot of things and written a lot of things it's much more clear that the things that sometimes it's seeing things that don't work and seeing things that do work really are illuminating. So the things that I feel that have been the most successful that we've written all have a core emotion that's very poignant or very moving or aspirational or whatever, that there is some real emotional stakes that is the best is that just supports it. It it, it allows you to be as crazy as you want to be because we, you care if you don't care, then everything is just a wash. It's all at the same
3: sort of volume.
1: Right. Like you look at something like Borat and you know, Borat was obviously very like outrageous and and went over the In my opinion, might've gone over the top a little bit too much. Some of of those scenes, but there's still that emotional, Thing there is the thing that's driving Borat. Like you feel for Borat when he's trying to to to, to well, kidnap Pamela Anderson um, yeah. <laughs> as his wife. No, and, but and, and there's, there's there's so much
4: emotion and depth to to Sasha's performance. Oh, Borat that oh, like amazing. If it was if it was an actor that was not doing that, like oh yeah, people would turn it off in five Instant. minutes. They'd Absolutely, be like, this is disgusting this is terrible this is stupid but like you can't help but care about this guy because everything he's, he's so doing innocent, he's so is coming innocent. from an earnest place yes and he's so hard and there's a real emotional thing where you're just like oh like i get what he wants i agree with him i want him to get that he's just going about it in the wrong way like, <laughs> uh, and he's not just like doing this yeah. stuff just to provoke reactions uh, real right emotions
2: forgives a lot of bad behavior and that's I think been true of comedy from you know time immemorial but I mean even something like there's another version of it which is like Kenny Powers on Eastbound and Down where he's doing really bad things he's saying really bad things but because Danny McBride as a performer
3: he's so he's just like an open wound he's -hmm. just so it's so obvious that he's
2: emotionally fragile and and broken that you see the 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 genesis of all of the pain and all of the behaviors that are that are generating out of this person that is doing all this bad stuff but you on some level you're like oh but he's he's not a bad person really he's just so insecure and so traumatized by whatever it is in his past that he is now expressing it in this way that is, of course, inappropriate and very funny. (laughs) Um, But, you know, not every performer has that thing. Um, And and writing can help with that sometimes. But there are certain special performers who you're kind of just on their side, even when they're doing bad stuff. And so often it's because they give you a glimpse into a different, they give you a glimpse into an interiority that, humanity. You
1: know, yeah. Humanity, humanity
2: that, yeah. that is there, even if they couldn't express it as a character themselves, you see it, you recognize it from what it is, which is vulnerability, which is pain, which is humiliation, which is whatever. And and those
4: are really powerful emotions. Uh, in there words, will American be no, visceral like, emotion. If you were if you were to read a lot of the yeah, like like Danny McBride, Kenny Power like that, those lines on paper, if you're just reading the script, you're like, I don't know about this. Character, like, I, right, I don't, right. But then you see a performer who can translate it to the next level. And it's so, it is an interesting thing. Uh, you know, when we talk to writers
3: that are still trying to, to, you know, find success, it's like you can't, you can't always
4: write, even though you can't always write that character, like, you know, it, it sometimes it takes an actor to make that happen and so like even if you see in your head or you feel like you know like i know in my head that when an actor does it this way it you'll see the emotion behind these lines but like these are the lines but if it's like a spec script that is just like going out to the tap like people cannot read it the way with the delivery that's necessarily in your head and so you know it is a complicated thing where like sometimes people are like how come i can't write like that in my script and then like this one went on to be successful uh you know but you know there's all these rules of what i can write it's like you Mm -hmm. just sort of have to like yeah there are different rules for different stages of writing and when you're first starting out like uh you need to write something that the a wide audience is able to read it and 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 see what you're trying to do
5: and on paper
4: and that doesn't necessarily mean you have to pander it just means that it
2: has to be written clearly all right i suspect that if you read the script of eternal sunshine of the spotless line you would be like this is amazing it's brilliant even though it's really weird but i think the reason you might feel that way on the page is because it's very clear what's happening mm-hmm. what's happening is super articulated it's super explained you get it it is illustrated and the emotion that it's dealing with is universal to every almost every single person has experienced that exact emotion. And so that's not to say, so that's an example of it, it is super specific. And obviously it's in his brilliant voice, Charlie Kaufman, but what he's actually writing about was actually expressing is something that anybody could understand. I wish I could just forget about this person, right? It's so visceral and it's so human that it's it 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 does so much work for you because you don't have to go far afield to imagine what that feels like and so it sells so much of the the idiosyncratic things about that movie And, and then you know obviously you see it performed and it's even better
1: right and that movie is so crazy that if it didn't have that 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 connection that emotional thread that we could all connect to quickly you'd be lost. Because it, yeah. it it's a hard movie to it is a hard movie to follow, but it isn't a hard movie to follow at the same time. But if you didn't have that, you would you would literally be you'd be lost.
2: When I th- and I think that that's where some of Charlie Kaufman's other movies, like *Synecdoche, New York*, you know, mm-hmm. I think is a much I, I like that movie and I thought it was really cool. But it is a more heady and sort of right intellectual experience that is a little bit harder to digest i think for someone that's not really focused on it 100 really
0: right it. we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show
2: a decision to, to digest it because you're kind of going with this writer whereas even something like adaptation it, it's very yeah. complex
1: oh yeah but
2: but Again, the, the heavy emotionality of that movie is actually oh, pretty love accessible
3: that movie. Love that movie. and
2: it's really well articulated. And so, so that's what I think Benji means, which is like, if you are going to write something really weird, you, you have to <laughs> let people in, find the way that, that people yeah. are let in by that piece of material and it'll really shine. Yeah.
0: So,
1: which, which brings me to Pokemon Detective Pikachu, brilliant title. <laughs>
2: Uh, well, yes, of
1: course. <laughs> I'll take it. Eternal Sunshine. Adaptation. Attention, <laughs> to and then let's bring it back to Pikachu. Yeah. No, so when I first like, I think the, 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 to
4: to uh, Eternal Sunshine that has Pokemon in it would be that's true. Uh, it
1: is that's true. <laughs> it is, is, the it... It, is the it is the it is, is the Eternal Sunshine of uh, of the Pokemon universe. There's no question. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely no
4: question. That was our guiding principle.
1: (laughs) So did you guys, was that an original spec? Were you guys brought in on that? How did you guys get involved with that project? So, you know,
4: that's one where uh, we had, we had actually worked with the producers uh, on a different movie, like a year or so prior. Um, And it's one of those things where like, it's the movie we were doing before was, the great movie we we're really excited about it. uh one of the i my favorite scripts that we've written. it seemed like, oh, this is gonna get produced. It was gearing up. We were talking casting, and then you know, we get a call one day, like, oh, actually, the producers are leaving for another studio, so the whole all their projects are dying. This one
5: included uh, and
4: so it was like another one. <laughs> it was the biggest disappointment of our career, and it felt like a huge failure. But when we look back now, it's like, Oh, no, that, that was a key turning point for us. Because we wrote this script with these producers, Uh, they loved working with with us, it was a great process. And then, you know, yeah, they, they took a job for, for another studio, like, okay, you know, there's a good opportunity for them, like, you can't blame them for that. And it's unfortunate that the project died, but they liked us, and they wanted to work with us again. And so a year later, when suddenly they're developing Detective Pikachu, we're now on the list of writers that they want to, mm-hmm. to bring in. You know, they're sort of like, who are the who are the biggest nerds we know? <laughs> uh, and that was that. So like the the actual concept of Detective Pikachu, it was based off. It was actually a video game. It was at the time we wrote the movie, the Detective Pikachu game was only available in japan on the nintendo ds so like it wasn't even in english we had like a rough translation of the game script yeah but uh yeah like they they brought us in because we're nerds who knew about pokemon (laughs) uh yeah you know
3: yeah i
2: think that what was helpful for us is we were maybe a little bit too old to be in the the full craze of the first generation of pokemon we were in high school we were in high school first but we were also young enough to be totally familiar with it and to play the games and to have opinions about the world to have pokemon that we like to be pretty familiar with at least the first few generations of pokemon now there's multiple generations you know a thousand you know like a thousand pokemon so you and, you know, if you meet a little kid, they can rattle off every single one. <laughs> you know, that, that took a little bit of training up for us. Sure. But at least for the original few generations, we, we knew them pretty well. And we're familiar with them. And so I think that one advantage that we had going into that project is we had opinions. We had, we said, you know, no, we should use this Pokemon because he's funny. Or this Pokemon has more of a cinematic personality as opposed to one that maybe is cooler in design or in principle but doesn't really have a defined voice that is going to translate to a movie. Was the so we was really,
1: the was the meme guy original pokemon? Mime. The
2: mime is that an Mr. original? So he yeah, Mr. Mime is a pokemon, uh not a very popular pokemon actually. <laughs> Shocking. Cuz he's weird and creepy and sort of atypical <laughs> of the other pokemon, but the things that made him kind of weird and unpopular actually were exactly the things that we needed for the movie because right. Mr. Mime had a way of expressing himself that some of the other Pokemon didn't. You could actually have a human
4: conversation with Mr. Mime as opposed to, <laughs> but, but know, also it was, you know, there was an element of like choosing which Pokemon were the most cinematic. Like <laughs> once we, we could build movies, right? Right. When we're telling a noir detective story, uh, you know, you're going to want to have an interrogation scene. And I think it was the director, Rob, who was like, wouldn't it be funny to do an interrogation scene with the mime Pokemon (laughs) who can't talk? And we were like, yeah. And so, uh, you know, then, of course, when we were writing that scene, uh, you know, this was us being like, all right, well, how are we going to get Answers from a from a mime Pokemon. Well, can we mime torturing him? <laughs> and it's one thing. So that's like, I would say, of of every crazy idea that we had when we were writing that movie, that was definitely one of the craziest ones. And that was when we were like, for sure, they're cutting this. Like, there's yeah. no way. That, oh no! That mind torture stay in the movie. And you know. Not only did it stay in, it was like the trailer moment.
5: It was, it was and, the trailer. <laughs> you know,
4: we were pretty surprised. We were, we were like, we were
5: "Wow,
3: surprised.
4: that made it all the way
2: through every every draft." Uh, <laughs> you know. So I think that was an example of just having some familiarity having having a, an approach into this world that is, you know, obviously very popular. But for people that are didn't grow up with it or who are kids. It's how do you let those people in on this world as well? And how do you make it equally satisfying for hardcore fans? But also right. my mom, UBs. who has yeah. no
4: idea. The, the, the other, I mean, the other challenge was that was like, yeah, we had to make it satisfying for, for random people in the general public who didn't know anything about Pokemon, but making it satisfying for Pokemon fans was also nerve wracking because this was a different kind of Pokemon. So like, you know, when we set out to write it, like the Pokemon company was, you know, pretty clear, like, you know, in this world of Ryan City, like there's no trainers, there's no battles, there's no Pokeballs, sort of like all of the defining characteristics of what makes a Pokemon story, Uh, you know? So like when they were like, okay, yeah, so do Pokemon, but with no Pokeballs. And it's just like, it's almost like right. doing Star Wars with no force, no <laughs> no lightsabers, you know, no, no lightsabers, <laughs> none of that, Jedi. no Jedi, just like, so you're kind of going, hmm. And so <laughs> what do we do here? You know, so it was it was a little scary when we first yeah. sat down. We we're like, do do the fans actually want this? Uh, you know, would they like so many of them probably just want to see the classic Pokemon story of Ash like old in a movie like right what is different kind of movie that we can tell but it actually you know as we were writing it it became kind of freeing that we didn't have to you know rely on decades worth of backstory and you know worry about like well if we can play this character this way it'll make people angry you know like the, the normal problems of adaptation didn't really apply Apply because, right. yeah, it was like it was its own side universe where you know, yes, it's part of the world and like it's all of the Pokemon creatures that people love, but able to see a different spin it of it. It was freeing ultimately, yeah. which is not something that we expected
2: to begin with. Uh, and it was a good lesson that sometimes maybe it is better to. M- sort of explore a pocket of the world that hasn't been explored before rather than go and tell a story that has been told over and over and over and over again that everyone has their own emotional connection to and their own expectation of what how that story should be told and what's important to, to highlight in a story like that and so right uh, that was a good lesson for us and, and something that we, we're going to try to take forward.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, seeing the origin story of Spider-Man. I'm like, guys, we, we all know how Spider-Man was created. We all know how Batman was created. We don't we don't need this anymore.
0: Let's move move it along. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
2: Which I think is <laughs> one of the reasons why Spider-Verse was such a revelation is because right let's get weird let's explore
1: let's get spider ham ham in there
2: (laughs) you know so and i think that that's what felt so i mean in addition to the visuals which are stunning but just from a story point of view it was it was didn't feel the need to tell that story again it really was able to range far afield from Mm -hmm. where any other spider-man story had had gone before and i think that that's what made it feel so fresh that's what made it feel so funny to, to have serious Spider-Man next to Spider-Ham, it seems like it shouldn't <laughs> work. But within the, the speed so of the film, it, it's perfect. It works yeah. brilliantly.
5: It was perfect So yeah. that's,
2: that's a good example of, okay, let's tell a different kind of Spider-Man story. And I think that that's a good challenge for anyone setting out to adapt, you know, something that is a pre-existing piece mm-hmm. of material or characters that we're familiar with, even if it's not, IP, per se, like Pokemon, Star Wars, whatever, but even if it's the Green Knight, you know, yeah. something that has existed for centuries, uh, how do you tell that story in a way that is modern, that is fresh? And those are, those are the stories that, you know that there's something about the story that works to begin with, because it's still with us after hundreds of years, and all, in some of these cases, Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. So now it's, okay, what do we, what do we do with this thing? How do we explore something that hasn't been explored before? And those are exciting moments as a screenwriter, I think.
1: Now, did you, did you work with Ryan Reynolds? Was he involved at all in the writing process at all? Cause I know he wasn't a deadpool a whole bunch.
4: Yeah. So he, at the stage where we were writing at the very beginning, he wasn't involved. Like we didn't, right. we weren't even writing for, Sure. Like, we were just sort of creating this character and, and writing the movie. And, you know, it was after they had that final script and they brought him on board. Like, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Ryan goes into the recording booth and he's so brilliantly funny that Gosh, so uh, lines change. And so, like, you know, we we're watching the movie and we're like, we didn't write that joke, but I love it. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that when you work yeah. with Ryan and yeah. someone who,
2: he is so quick and so funny and and has a great writing voice himself you know yeah. he's able to come up with this material that really works for himself and not every actor is able to <laughs> to do that as you can imagine but yeah. but he is he's able to say i'm going to try this or i'm going to try some yeah i don't know just he knows he knows what, he knows what, 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 works, what works for him, for him and him. the kind yeah. of things that he thinks are funny, which uh so happens that most people just date it, and, yeah. and so <laughs> we were really fortunate. Made us look good a lot of the time when he would say something really funny, and we're like, We didn't write that, but we'll take credit, we're happy to take credit. <laughs> uh, but but I think you know the part that I am proud about is that we wrote a character that he really liked and that that he felt like he could the foundation was there so that he could then run with it and do his
4: thing, which is what you want. And and, and, and coming from the world of TV where everything is collaborative, like we don't have that sort of same preciousness that maybe other feature writers might have of like, that's not the exact word I had. We're like, you know, on one day at a time or any other sitcom we've written on, like we've got jokes in every episode, not just the ones with our names on them. And, you know, the ones with our names on them, you know everyone else from the writing staff has jokes in there too it's like it is a collaborative thing and and we like that it's been useful to have that foundation in writing movies because you yeah. just have to be flexible and you have to yeah. not be like no it's got to be like especially that. these big sort of ip driven movies like there's there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen for that like that's just the nature it's a of huge it idea. you know these are corporate owned Properties like there's a, they they they're bigger than just you the writer of the movies uh, So, you know, how do you navigate within yeah. that? How do
2: you try to Make everybody Happy. Feel confident that you know what you're doing <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> That you have an opinion, you know, I think it's easy sometimes in those situations to say whatever you guys want, but Sometimes it's actually more beneficial to a project as the writer to say, Well, hold on. Let's slow down for a second. Here's why we decided to do it this way and to have a really good thought out reason. And sometimes people go, oh, you know what? You're right. Or, oh, you're right. I I didn't think about it that way. And so um, these big projects gain a a momentum of their own. And and sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees. But we were fortunate that Pokemon ended up turning out as good as it did because we love it.
1: And and then you also jumped on another big property, which is Adam's family, which is a yeah. huge, you know, like it's been around forever. And so many people know that. I mean, everyone knows the song. Everybody yeah. knows the characters. My, by the way, my daughter's obsessed with Adam's family right now. Like, they're obsessed, oh, yeah. obsessed with it. And I told them, like, you know, there's like a, there's live action movies. She's like, They're like, what? <laughs> They're like, yeah. there's live action. I'm like, yes, we'll yeah. get the live actions as well. How do you pro- like? I mean, that thing. I mean, that property, those stories. I mean, have been told again and again and told well in in other yeah. in other films. Uh, I had Barry Sonnenfeld on the show a while ago, and we talked about like, yeah, he knows, he knows. <laughs> yeah, <I mean>, like <laughs> how he had to deal with Adam's family the first one. So, how did you guys approach, you know, telling the story of the second animated version?
2: Well, I think that similarly to Pokemon, you know, we had a really it, we had a real sense of these characters. Sure, and I think yeah, that in the case yeah, of the Adams family, love for those and the deep characters. affection yeah. and love for those characters, and I think because of those live action movies and then going back and watching the old shows and the old reading the old strips, even. Yeah. But I think that when you have characters like the Adams family, unlike a Pikachu whose personality can only be so defined, right? The Adams each of them is extremely defined
4: and have it for decades.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: yeah so it, it made the writing like it's rare to absolutely <laughs> a, a structure starting a script where right you instantly on day one know exactly the voice of every one of your characters and like what yeah. kind of jokes they would say or like what's a good gomez joke what's a good morticia joke we didn't have to create any of that like that is set in stone we know people you know People know and love these characters we just have to do justice to those voices right, right.
2: so i think that you know the the adam's family 2 and, and the animated series is a little bit different than the live action because they i think they are aimed more at kids right. uh so it's then saying okay well what's a story that honors the adams family tradition and isn't pandering and isn't dumbing down but also is something that is emotionally accessible to to younger people that right. they can really look into and, and understand, and so then the question becomes, okay, yes, it's great that these characters are so sort defined, of but we've also seen them in a lot of different circumstances over the years, and so mm-hmm. it's like what's left that we haven't seen them do a million times before or that we haven't explored fully in this case um one of the premises of the movie is is, is Wednesday actually a member of the family an Adams family by blood by birth or not and that was a, and so it then became a question of well what makes an Adams what is an Adams
5: what uh, is it is it a birth
2: thing is it a birth thing is it an attitude thing is it nature is it nurture um both of which i think the Adams family is, would not like uh but but uh, so that was the genesis of 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 where that story idea came from, and then, like Benji said, the characters are so defined that part for us was relatively easy because we felt pretty confident to write in the voices of these characters now, not everyone can not everyone likes doing that right,
1: right, they want to like, create their own thing, right,
2: right, they want to create their own thing and and it just so happens that we actually enjoy doing both. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we enjoy creating original new characters and sometimes it's really fun to take somebody else's character for a spin and get to try out some things that you wouldn't normally, you know, I never thought I would get to write Gomez jokes. Gomez (laughs) is my favorite characters in all of anything. So it was a lot of fun in that respect. And it also felt like, it didn't really feel like work because so much of the work had been done for us. Really the bulk of the work was in the plotting and in, the, in the, the structure and the execution of that plot, as opposed to how is Gomez going to act here, what's a funny right, professor right, bit. Right. And then, you know, because this is animated, you can expand the range of what is possible for these characters physically.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. now back to the show in
1: cousin know, it I, yeah like cousin so, yeah, it. it you know it, yeah you know you
4: know the slowly transforming into a, an octopus creature is like it's one of those things where it's like in live action you would never no. really
3: do that oh, but lost.
4: uh in in animation it's like yeah let's yeah, we can, it. we can we yeah. can do
2: that as long as it feels That's consistent it with the fester that we know. Mm-hmm. And in this case, especially that, you know, that the kids are now familiar with. And we've been really fortunate that kids love. Yeah. The, I mean, they love the movie and the first they one. Love it. They love that's it. That's rewarding for us to hear, yeah. to hear from people. My kid has already watched it five times. I-, I Oh no, look-
1: my, my daughter is obsessed with Wednesday. Like obsessed with oh. Wednesday. She's like, she's like, Wednesday's the coolest character. Ever.
4: And she's so, and she is. Yeah. <clears throat> my i have i have a four-year-old daughter who we just the other day she she watched the movie uh for the first time and she loved it and she loved wednesday and like yeah i mean for me that was exciting because it was like the first thing that we've written that my kid could watch right uh, and <laughs> yeah. that was thrilling in its own way <laughs> uh, she was she was very proud it was nice no so, the do- yeah so,
2: so that's how you were, I, I would say that's how we approach something like family, which was you know every project has its own idiosyncratic sure. element, and and you kind of have to be adaptable and tailor kind of what is required of you as a writer to what the project is and and what the the, the ultimate goal of each of those projects is
1: now and obviously you were listening to the MC Hammer song on loop while you were writing this right the Adams family we the MC Hammer
2: We yeah. did <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we did not listen
1: to it. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, I'm going to ask you a few last few questions. I ask all of my guests um, What is the lesson that
3: took you the longest to learn, whether in the film industry or in life? Mm. Mm. The longest to learn. Um, I would say that, like, that it was sort of what I was talking about earlier of like the, the moments of defeat and the low
4: points, right. In hindsight are actually every single thing is a, is a, is a path towards victory in the end or, you know, it is a stepping stone. Like you, you look at it as like, this is the end, but really in hindsight, you will see, that like that was a that could have been a key pivotal moment and to not and just and sort of like allow yourself to remain open to that possibility even and try when we're in the moment now I think we're now a little better because we now have this career that we can look back on of this happening again and again Of like when a bad thing happens we can now sometimes say well like yeah. Maybe it's for the best because we made a good relationship here and we can still turn it into like it's not the end. It's not as like uh, doom and gloom as it maybe was early on in our career.
1: Yeah, it's great advice. Um, what is the, what, what uh, advice would you give a screenwriter trying to break into uh, TV or into the film business today?
3: I, I think, you know, like I said, there there isn't
2: one path
3: that is the path.
2: So you should disabuse yourself of the idea that you can replicate anyone's journey or that what you're doing is the way you have to do things or what the way someone else did it. It's just not true. Um, I think that the part of it that will always remain true is having something that you can, a piece of material that you can share with people where you say, where you reach a point where you can say, If someone doesn't like this, I'm okay with that because I feel like I executed what I wanted to execute, the best I could possibly execute it, knowing 50% or more of people who read anything that you write, including us, will just not like it for whatever reason. So you have to get comfortable with rejection. You have to get comfortable with judgment of things sometimes that are very personal to you. But my opinion is that if you write material that really is unique to your point
3: of view whether that is a personal ethnic point of view cultural societal class whatever
2: some amazing experience that you had some point of view or philosophy that you have that is unique like larry david you know mm. has a view <laughs> right? so when you when you can do something when when what you have written really is a calling card into the shorthand of your being and your personality and the way that you look at things that's the material that that inevitably is noticed and is passed around and is well received and so don't chase trends don't chase things that like you think that you ought to do I right mean, look at right flea fleabag right like she, that was a play and that she wrote but it would be hard to say okay i'm going to write a fleabag now you know that's not, <laughs> i don't think it really works like that i think yeah. that probably she had something inside of her that she needed to express and and through you know because she's brilliant you know like that it you know it, it wound its way until suddenly she is phoebe wallbridge you know right and fleabag is fleabag but everyone i think has that thing inside of them that is extremely personal, extremely unique. That doesn't mean it needs to be super serious or heavy. It just has to be from you and you alone. And once you have that piece of material, then you can and it takes time, right? You may not hit on that piece of material, the first time out, or the fifth time out or the 10th time out. But if you make a little progress, each time, now you're able to share that material. With others, and the feedback that you're going to get is going to start to get better and better and better. And as the feedback gets better and better and better, the range of people who will read it and the opportunities that are going to come your way are going to be are going to just expand. And so I, I would focus on that first and foremost, and then start to strategize about the nitty gritty of okay, who, how do I network? How do I get an agent? Right, how do right. That that's all good and important, but it doesn't really mean that much. And it's not as high yield unless you have that that entry ticket Mm -hmm. that is your script. That
0: is your voice. Yeah, your
2: voice. Again, it's like, write a brilliant script. It's like, yeah. (laughs) But I, I think it's actually a little more nuanced than that. I wouldn't say the script that Benji and I wrote that got noticed by some of these people was a brilliant script. Certainly not by our current standards. But what it was, was a true script to who we were in the time that we wrote it. And I think that that came through
4: in yeah. such a way that they were like, okay, maybe this script itself isn't perfect. We were not trying to emulate anything else. We were just writing ourselves on the page. And I think that's what excited people and and sort of. So there's a difference between like a
2: perfect script and a script that is getting across a point of view and a person, especially in television. It's like, if I read something that's not perfect, but is really interesting, or I think that the brain behind it
3: mm-hmm.
2: is really interesting. Nine times out of ten, I'll say let's let's talk to this person. Let's see what what they're about. Because especially when I'm running a show, I don't need everyone to be the best at writing the show that I'm in charge of. I, they don't they don't need to. They, 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 I don't need their own personal material to be so perfectly brilliant that that you know there's no criticism. But what I do need is to say. I think this person thinks in the right way. They have the right prerequisite amount of, you know, technical writing ability. And if they're a cool person and I like how they, you know, they are like if we vibe, I can teach them how to write how I want them to. Write
5: sure, the sure, sure.
2: And so I think that that's that that yeah that would be my advice
1: And last question, uh, kind of like rapid fire, three screenplays that every screenwriter should read,
3: or three pilot three pilots that every screenwriter should read. Mm-hmm. It's a good question. Um, Three screenplays or pilots that everyone should read.
2: Okay. Uh, If you're a drama, drama, if you're a dramatic writer, you should read The Pilot of the Shield. Yep. Um, It's unbelievably good. And it's just a special, it's just a special script. It just does some things that are shocking and even to people who watch it now, it's it, it's unexpected and it's just not what you think it's going to be. So that that would be one for drama. Um,
3: do you have one. A one for, for comedy. Uh, trying to think. The pilot. of I mean, I'm just thinking of, of scripts that I think are really
0: You you may be surprised. The pilot of Glee is. Mm. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It's,
2: it's truly, it's nearly flawless actually. Um, just in the way that it uses voiceover and the way that it uses the integration of the songs and the characters are clearly defined and a lot of characters in a period of time. It's very funny. It's really funny. Um, In many ways the high watermark of that show is for me at least it's really damn good um so that's a pilot that jumps out at me as as a really something to study and to and to like
3: just dig into what makes this thing work Mm -hmm. um and then as a a movie um you really can't go wrong with wayne's world it's yeah Mm -hmm.
2: it's it's really 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 special yes there are amazing performers at the heart of it but if you really strip it down to its basic components it is an underdog story Mm -hmm. that is perfectly articulated and every step of the way feels truthful and it feels real too and the stakes while in the wider sense of the world are pretty low to them it means everything and sometimes that's That's a hard, actually a pretty hard mark to hit, which is like, they're going to lose their public access show. (laughs) (laughs) That's their world. That's everything they have. But for Wayne and Garth, that is the world. Yeah, that's their world. That is the one area in which they feel special. Right. The one area in which they are anything coming from Aurora, coming from this town where (sighs) there's not much in front of them. But what they do have is Wayne's world. And when you try to take that away from them it is an existential crisis and you do understand like what are wayne and garth without wayne's world and and so there's a lot to really study and there's all kinds of craziness in the movie but the core emotions the friendship at the heart of that movie the idea of small town the idea of having a dream all of it is in, in that screenplay and I, I i just think it's remarkably good
1: well guys thank you so much for your time and thank you for being on the show it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you for making adam's family thank you for making detective pikachu my daughters are very happy about that Uh Continue success to both of you guys and and keep doing what you're doing guys we appreciate you
2: well thank you so much we really appreciate it we talking really appreciate it
1: i want to thank dan and benji for coming on the show and dropping their knowledge bombs on the tribe thank you again so much guys If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 677. And if you haven't already, please head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com. Subscribe and leave a good review for the show. It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there.